Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Joel Armin Hoyland, founder and CEO of Climate Finance Solutions. Climate Finance Solutions, or CFS as it's also known, is a mission-driven consultancy that helps companies and organizations around the world secure non-dilutive funding to develop and scale high-impact climate solutions. They also provide technology, business, and project development consulting to support their clients in securing funding and scaling their solutions. Their team has secured over $75 million in non-dilutive funding and leveraged over $30 million more in external co-financing, including several million in impact equity investment with an 88% success rate. Now, Joel also was an early member of the MCJ community, and he's been an active contributor as well both in the Slack community, but also advising and ultimately consulting with several companies in the MCJ Collective portfolio as well, to which we've gotten rave reviews from the founders that he's worked with. At any rate, non-dilutive financing is different than equity financing, and especially for climate tech companies, it comes up a lot and it can be a valuable source of funding, but many founders coming from other types of technology companies that maybe haven't gotten exposed to non-dilutive funding before don't know how to go about it. They don't know how the application process works. They don't know the people side. They don't know how to select which types of grants to go after. And they also don't know what it takes to win them and then what it takes from an overhead standpoint to keep up with them year over year on the other side. We talk about all of this and more. It's an important topic, and Joel is a terrific guest. Without further ado, Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And you might remember 
better than me, but I, f- I feel like you have been part of the MCJ community since the earliest days. When, when and how and why did you, how'd you find us? <laughs> yeah, I have been involved with MCJ from probably early in 2020. I, I heard about this podcast from a friend. I don't think I was there for the very first episode, but I was there for some of the first ones and, you know, really appreciated the, the guests that you had on. And I think joined the, the Slack community very early on too, and found it was a really valuable resource, both personally and, and professionally, and got involved in some of the early community building work and community discussions. And I think it really did a lot to kind of support both my business and my own climate journey too. Awesome. Yeah, no, I I remember that. You were popping around there in the early days and now you're like writing community voices pieces for us and you're working with a bunch of companies in the portfolio and now you're you're coming on the show. So psyched to have you. And and as I mentioned to you before we started recording, non-dilutive financing is a topic that's I mean, I had no experience with building a digital fitness company pr- prior to working in climate, but it's clear, especially now that I'm a few years in, just how important it is for, for many of these companies. So it's a topic that has been on my mind and I know some about it, but I have a lot of questions and it is at the core of what you do. So who better to learn from than you? So thank you for making the time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, to kick things off, tell me about your firm. What is Climate Finance Solutions? So we help companies and organizations all over the world secure non-dilutive funding to develop and scale their high-impact climate solutions. So we're helping companies navigate the non-dilutive funding landscape and really providing the, the full range of services that are required to access the multi-million dollar funding opportunities that we specialize in. Um, at a really high success rate. Right now, I think probably a pretty large majority of our clients are coming to us looking for for grant funding, I think probably because there's so much more becoming available right now, although we work with, you know, and had success with other types of non-dilutive funding as well. We are a fully climate-focused company, and, you know, we're trying to create maximum climate impact. For us, that means avoiding or removing greenhouse gases. Um, by helping direct non-dilutive funding to the most effective solutions and technologies. We also apply an equity and justice lens to the projects that we do. So we actually end up working with a lot of indigenous people and, and underrepresented communities. But in terms of technology, we're pretty sector agnostic. So we work with everything from buildings and building materials to batteries and, and all kinds of renewables, transportation, CDR. Regen Ag, sustainable development, a lot, a lot more, but there's a really wide range of things. And and I would say I think one of the reasons that we can do projects in, in any sector is technical depth of our team. I've been you know very intentional about kind of building a team that has those interdisciplinary technical skills. I've got a couple of PhDs on the team, you know, and then people who have experience, you know, developing, commercializing, and deploying climate tech, including myself. So, you know, we've really kind of been where our clients are and can go on that that journey with them. And it also allows us to provide other services in the context of non-dilutive funding that are often necessary to secure these big awards. So things like supporting project design, 
supporting technology roadmap development, commercializ- commercialization plan development. And then obviously we manage the full process of securing grants and, and non-dilutive funding uh, and do so pretty successfully. At this point, the team is, I think, 14 people, some of whom are contractors. And you know it's a very experienced fundraising team as well. So I think over our collective careers, we've raised over $500 million, fully distributed team, as are many companies these days. So we're spread across North America, Africa, and Europe. And we also do quite a bit of work internationally. Uh, we have clients on five continents, but we probably do 70 to 75% of our work in the US. You know, And I think both abroad and in the US, there's just been so much more non-dilutive funding and grant funding for climate, and you know, which is great. But we really want that to go to, to the highest impact companies. But we found that the teams that have the highest impact solutions or the highest impact technologies are not always the best at securing non-dilutive funding. So there are various barriers to that that we can get into, but you know, really it's just it's a different skill set than developing technology. So, you know, fortunately we do have that skill set. And so, you know, if we're able to add that capacity to companies, it really allows founders and teams to focus on their core business activities. And you know, taking a step back, if you think about that that distribution of labor where everyone is really focusing on their core competencies, I think that's the best thing for climate. You know, I believe, you know, as the climate ecosystem grows, I think it's also going to be really important to build this ecosystem of climate service providers like us and really just kind of lower the activation energy for these solutions and technologies to be developed and deployed. And, you know, that's ultimately why we're doing what we're doing. How did you get into this work? What's your journey look like? Yeah, I guess I would classify myself as coming from the environmentalist school of climate. It's actually very exciting that there are you know, other people coming from such a wide range of places, you know, but I'm kind of from the true believer school, I guess, that, that goes back to, to my childhood. You know, as we were talking about before, I, I grew up on, in Humboldt County on California's North Coast. It's a very kind of rural area, backpacking and, and kayaking and running cross country in the Redwood Forest. And at the time, this is in the late 80s and 90s, the timber wars were happening where we were trying to preserve the last of the old growth redwoods. And my family was a big part of the activism and, and that had a big impact on me. My dad was also a biologist, so you know, I was aware of climate change from a, from a pretty young age. And you know, I, I knew that I wanted to, to work on environmental issues. So I ended up going to UC Santa Barbara to get a, a BS in environmental studies. And once I got there, I quickly figured out that climate was the thing that I really wanted and, and needed to, to focus on. And that was both through the schoolwork that I was doing, but also the, the paid academic research that I was doing. So, you know, I was doing you know, field work and writing papers on the effects of sea level rise and studying the phenology and life cycles of plants and how that was changing with climate change. I also served on the board of directors of the Coastal Fund uh, for five years. And in that position, I was responsible for making funding decisions for grants, preserving the coastline. And so that was really my first in-depth exposure to to the granting process. I did a, a few other environmental jobs, including working as an analyst for the Coastal Commission. But you know, I wanted to 
focus on climate a lot more directly. So I went to work at All Power Labs, a bioenergy startup in Berkeley. And over my six years there, I got exposure to to a lot of different things that that really inform my work now. So you know, starting on the kind of engineering and, and R&D side, after a couple of years, I was running their, their manufacturing team and then was moved over to running project development, which was both in the US and, and also globally. And I also stood up a grants department and ended up winning several million dollars in grants. So at the time, the APL technology and business were definitely much too high risk for investment. And so we were able to get grants to you know, fund the R&D for the core technology and then fund the demonstration and deployments in California and, and all over the world. And so that was really my introduction to the, the transformational power of grants for, for climate startups. While I was working at APL, I also got my master's in environmental law and policy from, from Vermont Law School with a dual concentration in, in climate change and energy. And you know, that really complemented my the work I was doing, the technical work, because it helped me you know, understand how all the different parts of the climate system fit together and what the different policy levels were. So after I finished my master's, I was hired by Inunieri, which is a clean cooking company in Rwanda, to help them raise non-dilutive funds. So moved abroad with my wife and spent about two years completely immersed in the international non-dilutive funding space, working with international philanthropies and development aid organizations and multilaterals like the World Bank and, and Green Climate Fund. So Inunieri raised over $20 million in grants, concessional loans, and carbon financing. And again, I was really able to see the power of non-dilutive funding. You know, Inunieri at the time was generating revenue, but was definitely not profitable. And the non-dilutive funding enabled us to prove out a really innovative business model in a very difficult environment. And after working with Inunieri, we came back to the US at the very end of 2019, took a little bit of a break and was trying to figure out, okay, well, what can I do that will that will have the, the greatest climate impact? And I was seeing all these new climate startups that you know folks I, I knew were working in. And I was talking to them and seeing the difficulty of of many of those founders in accessing this big new wave of non-dilutive funding that was coming out if they were even pursuing it at all because it was pretty daunting and became obvious that there was a big gap in the services to kind of support these founders in in accessing non-dilutive funding and I realized that you know this was where I could really play a role in helping companies secure this this catalytic funding doing that with a lot of different companies at once I could have a much bigger impact than just doing it for one at a time so that was really the impetus to to found CFS and you know as as you mentioned MCJ was very valuable connecting me with founders and some of my earliest employees were hired from the slack you know that was the beginning of 2020 and then I think probably late 2020 early 2021 that's when things really started to take off was getting a little better known in the ecosystem and in putting a really good team together over 2021 and things have have really just accelerated from there and, and have been been continuing. From a distance, there's there's almost the perception that that non-dilutive funding is free money, where with equity you have to sell a percentage of the company. Uh, you know, with 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 debt, there's these onerous covenants and 
they can come after you and it's there's some big risks that maybe not everybody understands when they get involved with that but but with non you know with grants it's free money like why wouldn't you take it but i mean i'm i've been around enough to understand that everything has trade-offs what are the trade-offs with non-dilutive financing who is it a fit for who isn't it a fit for and how should one think about whether it might be a fit for them when they're assessing their capital stack it's definitely not free money and there's a time and place uh, at which to to take it i think pursuing non-dilutive funding can be and specifically grant funding it can be very very complex it can be very time consuming it can be difficult for people to even just navigate the ecosystem to understand what's out there and identify opportunities and assess them. There are really not that many good resources for helping people do that. And there's not really that many consultants either. The application processes are not standardized. They can be very long and complicated. It's easy to get disqualified. And it takes some experience to really understand exactly what the funders are looking for because everything they're looking for is not always kind of in the solicitation or or RFP. And there's really quite a big, a big learning curve to applying for these things. And then because these opportunities, especially public funding, especially multi-million dollar public funding opportunities are can be very time consuming. And so companies are maybe pulling resources off other things. So maybe some of their like high-level engineering people need to be put on it or their or their leadership team. For smaller companies, it can be all hands on deck. Like let's let's get this thing in. Um, so you know, a lot of people are just completely kind of turned off by that. And I think another thing that folks uh, are worried about is the post award management. So all of the different reporting and accounting things that people need to do, and that that definitely is something that folks need to consider. I think something that people might not be aware of, but is definitely still a barrier, is there's quite a bit of a lag time before receiving the funding. So if you're you're applying for for a grant, it can be six to ten months before you before you receive public funding. I, I do think that there are ways to kind of overcome these these barriers. I mean, for post award management, you can you know make that easier by really being careful about how you design the scope of work and the budget. And obviously selecting grants that are well aligned with with your roadmap and then getting outside expertise to help with these things is is always helpful. I, I do if someone is is in a relatively mature business, I would say, you know, it is reasonable to kind of try to build that internal competence, although it may take some time. You know, but for startups, building that internal team that's dedicated to this work is, is definitely not not easy. And, you know, I think the most important thing what I tell people is identifying and assessing opportunities is really the most important part of the entire process. Because if you're not pursuing the right opportunity, you're really just, it's a waste of time. So it's really important to kind of be doing, you know, a comprehensive search of the ecosystem, make sure you're down selecting opportunities in accordance with priorities and making sure that things are, are aligned with your roadmap. In terms of who who is eligible for it, I mean, there's different types of funding that are available at, at different stages uh, of a company. And I think it's really important to have an, an integrated fundraising strategy. So, you know, basically integrating non-dilutive funding with dilutive funding with equity investment, because I think 
best chance of scaling the enterprise and climate impact certainly as quickly as possible is really taking advantage of the full capital stack, right? So using investment funding can help provide runway to get through the lag times of non-dilutive funding, and it can also kind of help provide co-financing. But to really kind of have that integrated view, you need to tailor the approach to the the unique needs uh, of each company. So there's going to be different types of funding, whether that's public funding or, or philanthropic funding or debt available at, at different stages and appropriate at different stages. So what you need to really do is look at your technology, look at your kind of commercialization roadmap and pathway to scale, and then use the available non-dilutive funding that you've identified through an identification process and match that up to the relevant points in, in your roadmaps. And then you can identify you know, where you can use equity investment to fill the gaps in non-dilutive funding or the other way around. If you kind of know when your equity rounds are going to be, you can identify you know, how you're going to use non-dilutive funding to kind of backfill, you know, to get over, over a valley of death or, or support a certain you know, R&D pathway. And you know, that's a process that we do with pretty much all of our clients. So in terms of who is eligible, I would say you know, most, most climate startups are eligible for non, non-dilutive funding, but it's really a matter of being really intentional about when and where you take it and kind of having that integrated fundraising strategy. Joel, can you talk a bit about the eligibility requirements and also it, is your recommendation that everyone who's eligible pursue it? Different types of opportunities have different eligibility requirements. So oftentimes, you know, philanthropic sources of capital, they do provide funding to private sector companies, but it can be a lot more difficult to funding for private sector companies. With public funding opportunities, there are oftentimes, you know, a range of actors or entities that are eligible for that type of funding, but you may have a much better chance at it with a certain type of entity. And so you can kind of mitigate some of those drawbacks by by developing partnerships. So we work with a lot of private sector companies, probably 95% of the folks that we work with are actually private sector companies or climate startups. But a lot of times we will identify you know, an academic partner, for example, a big NSF research grant. Sometimes an academic partner needs to be the lead or it really kind of should be the lead, like that's what they're looking for. And so you can use partners and identify other partners that can be a lead applicant to really get around some of those eligibility requirements. And should everybody who is eligible seek it? You need to develop that integrated fundraising strategy and that roadmap to figure out when it makes sense. So I would say for a lot of certainly climate hardware startups, it's most likely going to make sense to take non-dilutive funding at some point in the development cycle. I think for other companies, maybe software companies, it may be a bit easier to, you know, the venture funding space is kind of optimized for software. And so it can be easier to, to do it without non-dilutive funding. But, you know, I've seen a lot of software companies really be catalyzed, especially kind of in the early days by even a smaller infusion of, of non-dilutive funding. So I think the main thing that you need to do is really take a comprehensive look at what is out there and match it up to kind of what your technology roadmap is and what your commercialization plan is, and then make a decision based on your availabil- the availability of funding and then what your roadmap is. Does it work similar to 
I, I'm just thinking philanthropic giving, say, at the university level, where sometimes funds are earmarked, where the university can use it for anything they want, and other times it's strictly for athletics or strictly for theater or, or things like that. With equity financing, generally, I mean, it's a it's at the company level, and and the company can choose to use the proceeds how they think it will be most impactful. Are there any restrictions that come along with a grant funding or certain types of grant funding? Yeah, I would say the majority of grant funding is going to be for specific activities or a specific program for private sector companies. I think there are very few grants, whether they're philanthropic or public funding, that are going to be unrestricted operating funds. That's really more of a model of of grants for nonprofits. And we do work with nonprofits. We do work with some foundations. We're not only working with private sector companies, but I think for a climate startup, you're most likely going to have to be looking at what's the technology roadmap that you have and matching up the specific funding opportunity to some of the activities that are on your roadmap. Uh huh. And you mentioned before that, that sometimes there are cases where what they put in the I don't know the word, a brief or, you know, in the, in the description of, of the grant that they're looking for things that aren't in there. Can you give some examples of what types of things they might be looking for that they wouldn't include in that description? Yeah, I think it, it is more a matter of potentially a matter of emphasis, right? Because oftentimes uh, they will put, they will say, okay, we have this long list of funding focus areas of things that we like to fund, whether that's, that can be philanthropies where they have different funding focus areas, or that can be a specific RFP or solicitation for, for public funding. Sometimes in a specific fiscal year, they might have a specific priority that is not necessarily mentioned in the RFP. Or for the philanthropy, if you're trying to identify what who's a good fit, you need to not only look at the funding focus areas, but you need to go to their past grantees because they may have three funding focus areas, but they may provide 90% of their funding to one of those three funding focus areas. And so you really need to do more background research on the funder and the agency more than just reading specific solicitation or RFP. I know if you take the the equity landscape, for example, there's different types of capital. There's generalist technology capital, there's climate specific capital, there's catalytic capital, there's double bottom line capital. There, I mean, there's all sorts of kind of twists. What does that landscape look like on the non-dilutive side? Yeah. So I think in general for climate startups, non-dilutive funding is typically going to take the form of, you know, there's grants, right? So that, that public, public funding and, and philanthropic funding there's debt and there's various kinds of debt. There's kind of concessional debt. There's loans. There's loan guarantees. There are blended financing instruments. And so that's where you really use different classes of capital, like public or philanthropic funds, to catalyze private investment. And I think even government incentives or individual contributions would even kind of count there. And so you mentioned that hardware startups, for example, will likely be a good fit for grant financing at some point in their journeys, whereas software, it's it's more of a toss-up. What does that eligibility criteria look like? And what is it about hardware, as an example, that makes it a more obvious fit? Yeah, I mean, I would say that hardware has larger capital costs. They have longer development cycles. And I think this is something that you know a lot of people are aware of. 
don't know if it's necessarily a criticism of, of venture capital, but it's just there is somewhat of a mismatch oftentimes between the cycles of, of hardware funding, which may be a 15 years to exit versus the five-year VC fund model. And there are more VCs that are kind of changing their, their fund horizons and, and models now, which is really great to see. But there are, you know, so there are issues with kind of securing other types of funding in terms of uh, development cycles. And then uh, oftentimes there are capital requirements that are not always easy to fund, especially in the beginning when, you know, there's kind of more risk. You talked before about how these are different muscles, uh, raising equity versus raising non-dilutive funding. Is it an exception when a company ends up raising venture capital, let's say, and grants? Or or do most people that raise grants also raise money from venture capitalists on the equity side as well? How much overlap is there? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of overlap, and I think an increasing amount. So a majority of our clients who we win, you know, a lot of a lot of grant funding for are venture funded. There are quite a few advantages, I think, to having venture funding or having equity investment when you're pursuing non-dilutive funding. I mean, you're able to kind of have uh, enough venture funding to provide runway to get through the lag times between applying for non-dilutive funding and actually securing that funding. Uh, and you're able to kind of do more work on the front end to give yourself you know, a track record, prove out your technology, maybe prove out the, the technical feasibility of that technology that makes you eligible for maybe a later stage of technology demonstration and, and deployment grant, or even gets you to being able to, to, to raise debt funding. And what are some common misconceptions that people have coming in that are poking on whether this might be a fit that are eye-opening once the potential client or client becomes informed? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most common misconceptions that was something that that you already raised, which is the fact that it's free money. I think some people kind of enter into the space and we found that you know a lot of companies are doing it opportunistically. So they may hear about an opportunity someone might tell them about about something or maybe they do kind of a cursory look around you know grants.gov and then they do an assessment but they're not really they don't really know you know how to really match up the funding opportunity to their roadmap and it's not really the most kind of strategic or or efficient way of of going about it and and so you know a lot of people end up taking time to apply for opportunities that really aren't a good Aren't, aren't a good fit fit for them. And then, you know, folks get confused about, you know, I've applied for three opportunities, why am I not pursuing it? And then we're able to kind of come in and, and, and help them understand how they can better identify opportunities, how they can better assess opportunities, and how they can start working on funding that is maybe more appropriate for their model. And you mentioned that for hardware companies, for example, because they're capital intensive and the cycles aren't necessarily aligned to the typical venture capital cycles. Let's use a different example where venture capital is abundant for a particular company or category. Does that make grant funding more relevant, less relevant, or is that a non-factor for, for them? Like, should If equity is there, should companies just stick to equity? Or would you recommend that even if equity is more abundant than they would ever need that this still could make sense to pursue. I think that it the availability of equity is 
doesn't necessarily preclude pursuing non-dilutive funding. I think that there is, you're raising different rounds of equity. There are different terms that you can get if you have non-dilutive funding. Oftentimes we've seen venture funded firms want to secure non-dilutive funding because they have a funding round coming up. It might be easier to you know, secure more advantageous terms or they just you know, need to, to raise less funding. There are also kind of different uh, tracks in folks' development cycles. So you know, there may be technology in your technology roadmap. You may have a product where you, know, you can take this to market. This is what you have gotten your, your investment for um, and you, know, you can be successful with that. But there may be kind of a potential breakthrough technology that you could also, uh, that's not on your development path, your current development pathway, but, and you may not be you know, able to use some of the investment dollars for that because it's kind of, it's, it's high risk. That would be a good fit for non-dilutive funding, even if someone kind of has that, that venture capital. And when it comes to the types of non-dilutive financing, I, I mean, it's, a, I don't know why I'm thinking of this analogy, but if you look at a wealth manager, for example, a financial advisor, there might be a generalist who's like your primary point of contact, but they can't be an expert on everything because the bond landscape is different than the public equities landscape, which is different than the alternative assets landscape, which is different than commodities or whatever. And uh, so they have specialists that they work with for each. On the non-dilutive side, is it pretty straightforward where you can have a firm like yours that, that can help across everything? Or does there need to be further specialization or, or other opportunities for further specialization within the non-dilutive landscape? Yes. I mean, there's certainly specialization within the non-dilutive funding landscape. I mean, I think most of the folks that are coming to us are looking for grants and we really specialize in multi-million dollar grants, whether that's public funding or philanthropic funding. Uh, and we really work mostly with, with private sector companies, although we also work with other you know, nonprofits and, and foundations and tribal organizations. And we also have experience with securing concessional debt and, and carbon secured financing. But if that really is the primary need, then we will potentially work, we'll bring in an outside consultant that really kind of has that specialized expertise that someone needs because we want to make sure that we're going to be as successful as possible at raising those funds. You know, and if someone is you know, looking for, some people do come to us looking for both non-dilutive funding and investment, we will provide a referral for the equity equity investment portion of it. And I think most firms that are working with non-dilutive funding kind of have an area of, of specialty. For these grants, they're grants that are, so I'm saying this is a statement, but I'm asking it as a question, that are based on projects that can have an impact in a cause that the grantee cares about. And so my question, well, one, like, is that right? Um, and then two, how important is viability? And I bring that up because I remember when I had a fusion guest on the show, they were talking about the fusion landscape and there are certain approaches that are higher risk and lower probability to work. But if they work, they'll be much less expensive, for example. And then others that have a higher probability of working, but it'll be more incremental improvements relative to existing options if they work. And so how much does, vi like, and if you look at equity, certainly they're not just looking at what will have an impact if it works? They're looking at like what teams are uniquely equipped to take a real shot at point. Like who are the, what horse are they going to bet on to actually do it? Right? Like like viability matters. So does viability matter when assessing who gets grants? Yeah, I mean viability absolutely matters. I think every single 
non-dilutive funder wants to get a win, even if that's a public funding agency who is providing high-risk capital, uh, who providing high-risk grant funds, those funding managers and program managers are motivated to have successful projects within their portfolios. Do they have performance data that they track? And if so, what do they care about? Like with a venture investor, for example, they look at like, you know, multiples of capital and timeframes and, and they have these like fancy acronyms and terms. Uh, what does that look like in the non-dilutive world? They certainly have metrics for success. And I think it varies between different organizations. I think for, for philanthropic organizations, they have their theory of change and their, their impact. And I think if their impact metrics are satisfied, whether that is co-benefits or livelihoods or, uh, or gender or you know, also obviously climate impact, they're, they're happy with that. Oftentimes, depending on the program, public funding will, will say, okay, well, we got X number of companies through commercialization or we get X number of technologies through to TRL if it's kind of an earlier stage. So they definitely all kind of have those, those impact metrics. Going back to, your, to the other question about appropriateness of, of different, different opportunities, you know, it's really about there are different types of opportunities and different types of funding that are designed for different things. So there are certain public funding opportunities that are really designed for extremely high risk work. And so some of those are kind of the SBIRs where you're really in the point where you're Proving technical feasibility. There are other opportunities that are a bit later. Oftentimes, ARPA-E is really looking at kind of technology to market, and they have programs like Scale Up, where they're taking technology that's already basically been funded and proved out, proved out as technical feasibility, and funding as pathway to scale. So it really depends on the program. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's so important to really do a good job of identifying the different opportunities in the ecosystem and kind of mapping out the funding ecosystem to identify the opportunities that are really aligned with your technology and and your commercialization plan and how you're going to reach that goal. And they say, at least on the venture side, that the sorts of introduction really matters if it's like kind of an unknown service provider, accountant or something versus portfolio CEO that they've backed three times who returned the fund on the last two companies that that he or she built, then maybe they'll take that introduction more seriously, especially if it's in a in a category that they understand really well, for for example. My question is, so there's these applications, but what about the people side? Like does the source of introduction matter? How important are relationships? And in some ways, are you like a I mean lobbyist is the wrong word, but it's like uh you know, if you get walked in by Joel, it means something different than if you just fill out the application like everybody else. Does does that matter when it comes to grants? Yeah, it definitely matters. And I think it matters to certain degrees, depending on the funding type. I would say the philanthropic landscape is very similar to the investment landscape and maybe even maybe even more so depending on on relationships. You'll see on the majority of philanthropies websites it will say no unsolicited unsolicited proposals or proposals by invitation only which basically means they're going out and finding companies or finding grantees, or more likely, they're basically asking people in their networks and other philanthropies, hey, who is someone that would be high impact that we could fund that would fit our funding focus areas? Does that create an equity issue? Yes, absolutely. It creates an equity issue. And I think that's one of the biggest issues in the philanthropic world is that what what are the odds that the highest impact solution is going to be two degrees of separation from someone, a program manager, 
manager at a philanthropy. It's it's pretty unlikely. So there's definitely an equity issue there. But I do know that a lot of philanthropies are changing some of the ways that they that they do things and even changing the structures of some of their programs to really kind of support more equity. You know, there's there's a, a philanthropy that is actually starting to fund more in the developing world, fund uh, more private sector companies because they realize that most NGOs were by founded by foreigners because they could make not make a profit. And so in order to fund local funder founders, they needed to to fund private sector companies. And so there's folks that are definitely working on that and changing the structure. Um, but that is definitely one of the the biggest issues, I think, in in the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it, it's disheartening to hear that, for example, the equity philanthropy world might have an equity problem, right? And it, it's like if, if the psychology world has a mental health crisis or something, right? Uh, <laughs> then it's like, what does that say for the rest of us kind of thing? And I think that everyone, like everyone has good intentions here, right? It, it's not It's not by any means something that they're trying to exclude people. It's just kind of the way business is done and the way business has been done. I do think that's changing. I mean, we're seeing a lot more kind of newer, more, you know, really climate focused philanthropies out there, oftentimes backed by high net worth individuals. And a lot of the kind of incumbent traditional institutional philanthropies are changing some of their policies, are are starting to have programs that are, you know, more climate focused or or starting new climate programs, even though uh, a lot of a lot of them have, have been doing great climate work for a long time. And I did want to just mention, go back to the funder engagement question, just because it's, you know, it's important, certainly not just for philanthropies, although I think that's probably, it's probably the most important for philanthropies, but it's also very important for, for public funders as well. Most public funding uh, in terms of grants are done with a competitive RFP or a competitive solicitation process. So you don't actually ever have to reach out to someone. And I think a lot of people do just apply for lots of grants without ever reaching out to the program managers. And that is something that we always do. We always try to make contact with the program manager and not just when there's a specific opportunity out, but when we're working with a client over a long period of time, say a hydrogen company, we're making sure that we're talking to people in the advanced manufacturing office and in the hydrogen and fuel cell office at, at DOE, because just having those introductions is really important doesn't mean they're going to put their thumb on the scale. It just means that they're going to know more about the technology and they're going to have a good impression of those folks. And the company can share important information you know, with those program managers. And they're you know, really usually, usually open to that. And so I think funder engagement on the front end is, is really important, not only with philanthropies, but also with public funders. Maybe it'd be helpful just from an illustration standpoint to run through a quick case study or two, and don't don't mention any names uh, if you prefer not to or, or aren't allowed to or something. But if you can, just run through like, you know, a client that was this type, you know, at this stage had these needs. And when we engaged, here were their goals and here's what we did and here's the results they had. So, something like that, just to kind of bring to life the work that you do at CFS. So I think that there are a lot of clients that come to us with hard tech that are in the R&D cycle and are not able to get uh, equity investment yet at that point because the risk is just too high. And so what we're looking at is, you know, what we start with is what we call uh, mapping the funding ecosystem, which is basically our our way of identifying and assessing opportunities. So we understand what the company does, 
we sit down with them and we say, okay, what are your funding priorities? What are the activities that you're looking to fund? What funding amounts do you need? What geography are you are you looking in? And then we take a step back and we say, okay, knowing what we know about the the funding ecosystem, what are the different funding buckets that they could get funding in? So we're trying to enlarge the universe of funding as widely as possible. So let's say it's a bioenergy company. We're not just looking for that specific type of bioenergy. We're looking for rural economic development and all of, and, you know, maybe uh, waste to energy and all of the kind of upstream and downstream issues so we can enlarge that universe of funding. And then we do a really comprehensive search of that ecosystem. And we're looking at thousands of opportunities, oftentimes, and hundreds of funders, and we're able to build a funding pipeline where you down-select and prioritize all of the different opportunities. And that really allows you to identify the opportunities in the ecosystem that have the highest probability of success and are the most well aligned with what the company wants to do. And that I think is one of the, you know, that's always the first step that we take with people. And that really is one of the keys to having that really high success rate, because it means we're working with pursuing the right opportunities that have the, the highest chance of success. And it, there's also patterns that kind of pop out of that. Oh, there's a lot more funding coming from these areas. This is where we can do the most effective funder, funder engagement. So is a typical goal when an engagement kicks off from a client, like a dollar amount of non-dilutive financing, I aspire to raise $5 million in non-dilutive financing. Are there other criteria that they tend to have beyond that? Or is it as simple as just a dollar amount in grants? There are specific requirements for each opportunity. So it's going to depend on the geography that they're in, the type of work that they're doing, and even within the category of work, the specific activities that they're looking to fund, because not every opportunity is going to fund every every specific activity. And so you really have to drill down and do a pretty detailed assessment as to how good of a fit is the opportunity for, for the specific client. But usually you take you can take a look at the technology roadmap and say, okay, they need X number of dollars to get from where they are to where they need to be because they're in one of the valleys of death, equity investment is not available, or it's not appropriate, or it's going to be hard to get on on good terms, how much money they need to need to get where they want to go. And usually because, you know, we're specializing in large opportunities, we're looking at pretty ambitious projects that are going to be multi-million dollar projects. Given the time lag in between do the clients tend to be hair on fire when they call you? Like, is it a fire drill? Like, we're running out of cash and we're, you know, we're not having luck on the equity side. And so we're switching gears and we're going to focus on grants. Or is that destined to fit? Like, once you're in that mode, is it too late? Well, you have to have enough runway to get you through the lag time. Even though we have a very high success rate, any individual opportunity is sub 100% chance of success. If there's going to be a nine-month lag time and you have nine months of, of runway, this should not be applying for a grant should not be your only way that you're trying to that you're trying to raise funding. It's kind of parallel processing and so sometimes they're out ahead of the game and they're just exploring because it seems like it could potentially be viable so we're going to explore in parallel as we do a number of other fronts and then other times it, it's like well we kind of got our teeth kicked in on the equity side but we still have a year of cash and so let's see what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we do with all of the clients is develop an integrated fundraising strategy. And not only with our clients, like I work with a variety of accelerators like Breakthrough Energy Fellows and Third Derivative and, and Techstars. And I also work with a variety of, of VCs to just help people understand how important it is to put together an integrated fundraising strategy where 
you're sitting down and you're you're understanding you know what your pathway to commercialization and scale is, what your technology roadmap is, doing a really strategic identification and assessment process of the non-dilutive funding ecosystem, and then matching those things up. So you're not coming in with your your hair on fire. You're able to really strategically go after all the elements of the capital stack, whether that's equity investment or or non-dilutive funding. It reminds me a bit. I mean, we haven't talked about business model yet, but I used to, before I was an entrepreneur, I I spent a little bit of time, a couple of years as a headhunter, and I was doing, you know, CEO and executive searches on a retained basis for small, high growth technology firms. And in that business, you get retained and there's kind of installments, um, but it's it's success-based. You, I mean, you get paid either way for the engagement, but you keep driving until there's success. What does the model look like in your world? Yeah. So there are a lot of folks that, that do what we do, potentially even the majority that work on a success fee or an award fee basis. And I started out doing that, but I had a couple of experiences that really made me move away from that. So there were a couple of times where I was working on majority success fee basis with a client and for reasons completely unrelated to what to what we were doing, they decided about 90% of the way through, ah, we're not going to apply for this. And so basically we had done a lot of work and we had almost no way of getting paid. And after having that experience a couple of times, it just seemed like it was a better model to just kind of work on a straight hourly rate. Funding ecosystem mapping that we do for identification and assessment, that we do on a flat rate basis just because it's a very standardized process, a very streamlined process. And so that's just a flat rate. But all of the other work we do is on an hourly basis, both because I kind of had those experiences with success fees, but also because, you know, we're not just providing those services that are, we're writing a grant for you and that's it. Oftentimes, we're providing those other services like helping design projects, helping engage with the funder, helping develop and cultivate partnerships, helping design integrated fundraising strategies and commercialization plans. And so, you know, all of that takes very pretty wide, widely varying amounts of time. And so kind of the hourly basis just makes the most sense. And I, I know from, you know, hearing about your process and stuff that there's these layers of work and each one builds upon the other. But ultimately, if I'm a client, it seems like the thing I would want to know if I were evaluating working with you is what's your batting average? The the people, the clients you take on, what percentage of them are able to raise the capital that they aspire to successfully? Is is that how you think about it? Is that how your clients think about it? And to the extent you're comfortable sharing, would love to hear what your batting average is. It means one of the things that I think we try really hard to keep that batting average up just because that's how we best serve our clients. And that's how, you know, it's one of our big selling points. So we have an 88% success rate in terms of dollars awarded versus dollars pursued. So we calculate that basically, how much funding did we apply for? And how much funding did we win? That's a pretty, pretty high number. And I think there are a few reasons for that. I think number one, we do a very strategic identification and assessment process. So we're really going after the highest probability opportunities. B, we're working with really the highest impact companies that that we can find, which always kind of have the best chance of securing funding. We have a really deep technical team. And so we're able to like really take on highly complex projects and do a really got good job kind of explaining and and presenting them. And then we do very uh, sustained funder engagement. So as I mentioned, we were talking to program managers, talking to other people, we're helping our clients fill out RFIs or requests for information, having them attend workshops and all of that, that funder engagement is really important. Like funders do really recognize those things. And I think 
all of those things that we do, in addition to obviously just being really good at, at this process and putting extremely good packages together, have all contributes to that. And maybe this question's too inside baseball, but it sounds like the intent of moving away from the success fee wasn't to gouge or to get more money. It was more just about protection and looking to make sure that you're paid for your hard work. So given that, is there a wide range from project to project in terms of how the hourly rate nets out versus what the success fee would have been at successful completion? Or is it is it pretty consistent? And, and, uh, and how close is it to, or how does it compare to what the success fee would have been? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the nature of a success fee is that you're going to have to charge more than you would otherwise because you're taking a risk. And so if someone is going to be using a success fee and they're successful, you're going to be paying a lot more for that project than you would have otherwise. But of course, it's, it's less risk for you on, on the front end. So I mean, it's just, it's just a different, just a different model. And I think there's benefits and, and drawbacks to both. But, you know, we have a lot of clients that we worked with for a very long time, some of them pretty much since the inception of the company. And that's one of the reasons we're having to hire so quickly is we have so many clients kind of stay with us for a long time because we are consistently winning funding for them. And, you know, at this point, we're not just helping them with fundraising, but we're helping them with program design and project development activities. Couple other questions. These are less CFS focused, but one is what does the supply and demand look like? Like what is the the capital that's out there versus the high quality companies that deserve it? Where where are we at today? Um is it are they in balance or is there, you know, is is there a glut of one side versus another? I mean, there's definitely a lot more funding now than there was even two years ago. I mean, I think the last 18 to 24 months, there really was kind of an inflection point in the availability of funding, particularly grant funding. So there's a lot more available, but I still think that there's not enough. I think there are a lot of really great climate companies. And I think there was this wave of entrepreneurship that you're writing and, and we're both really writing that is kind of matching that and, and even exceeding it. And I think there are a lot of technologies that are in the pipeline that are going to be needing non-dilutive funding over the next several years. And I think there needs to be a lot more funding. There's, you know, there's the $555 billion that were in earmarked for climate in the Build Back Better bill. That's needed. Like if that reconciliation bill doesn't pass, you know, that's definitely going to be an issue because all of that funding is needed and more. I mean, I think the world right now is only spending about 15% of the $4 trillion that's needed for climate each year. You mentioned that there's not that many consultants out there that do this work. Why? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it was actually pretty surprising to me when I early on, I kind of did a, a competitive analysis of, of the landscape. There are quite a few folks that are kind of independent consultants. There's not that many actual firms with 10 or more people out there. Um, and then just kind of the, the sector that we're working in is, you know, there's just fewer folks. So there's more people writing grants for nonprofits because that's kind of how the, the philanthropic community has been oriented towards, towards nonprofits. There are, so, you know, kind of we're, there are fewer people kind of on the private sector side. There are fewer people on the kind of purely climate side. Uh, we're, we're one of, if not the only solely climate focused grant organizations out there. And I think part of it is that there's kind of a lag time in terms of there's just a lot more funding coming out and there's a lot more need. I think there will be a lot more firms that are get founded and get started. And frankly, we can't satisfy all the demand in the system. So I hope more people jump in. We're mission driven. We really 
want the highest impact companies to be securing all this, all the funding that that they need. The success fee model, I mean, compare and contrast that to what a typical broker does. Are they essentially brokers for grants? You could say it's a similar model. I don't know if it's if they're brokers because I think that there's kind of a less high percentage chance that you're actually going to to win something, whereas a broker is really doing the work until you are able to secure funding in, in most cases, right? And so that success fee is you're more more likely to get that, I think. With uh, with a consultant that's working with non-dilutive funding, I think it's just less likely in general because there's a less of a hundred percent chance that that's going to actually be successful. In both models, whether it's success fee or more like yours, it is very human intensive. What role, if any, do you think there is, or could, or should be for digital and automation? So, say a digital marketplace that maybe is self-service, for example. Like you think, does that type of thing exist? Could it exist? Should it exist? Yeah. I mean, there needs to be a lot more, a lot more automation of this. And they're just the process for identifying and securing philanthropic funding is basically manual. You know, there are some aggregators out there, and we certainly use a lot of those aggregators, but usually they have different focuses. There's not really kind of a single database that's out there for either public funding or philanthropic funding. And so when we do our ecosystem mappings, we're looking in a wide variety of aggregators, both open source and paid. We're we're looking we have our own private database. We have access to a couple of private databases. And you know, we're also just talking to people in the ecosystem who are who are in the know that may know of things that are less well known. So there's not really a central clearinghouse for opportunities. And and I think there definitely could be. And I think there's a, a role for automation as well uh, in terms of kind of using technology to, if there was a central clearinghouse, or even if you could scrape data from from multiple sites, there's definitely ways to to automate those those things, both in terms of identification and assessment. And you know, those are things that we're working on, but are certainly not not out there in the world today. Yeah, like why is there, and this is a term from like the 90s when I applied for college, but, but why is there no equivalent of the, the common application? <laughs> that, that is something that I think every grant writer has bemoaned about a million times. It would be great if there was a common application. I think there are, people have, have tried to do that, but I think it's just extremely siloed and it's very hard to get people to change their ways. I think different Safe philanthropies have have ways that they've been doing it that that work for them, and there's a certain amount of activation energy that needs to go into making that making that change. And then, you know, with government entities, they have the the specialized information that they that they want, and there's maybe not even just the resources to do that. And there's not really any central organizer for the ecosystem to kind of kind of make that happen. That would be great, and I think that would be incredibly important for improving equity in in the system in terms of who can who can apply and who has access to that. You know what I meant to ask you is that if you take policy as an example and advocacy and and things like that climate tech that's a big need and so there's firms like I had Jim Capsis from the Ad Hoc group on the show and and it's I mean he's done work with a bunch of the portfolio you know people love the firm but in some ways it it feels kind of like training wheels where you know you do it for a period of time and then ultimately you build out a team in house either instead of or in addition to working with an outside firm do you see this following a similar track where you work with a company before it makes sense for them to have a staff and then ultimately either instead of or in addition to working with you they build out these expertise in house 
Yeah, I think once a company gets big enough, when they hit the SME categorization, I I do think that it makes sense for them to build out that capacity in-house, just because there's going to be so much non-dilutive funding coming out in the coming years, and and there's a trend towards more money for deployment. So it's really not just R&D funding anymore. There's more money for demonstration. There's more money for deployment. There's even more money, even though oftentimes it's like blended finance or, or debt, there's more money for commercialization, right? And, and big first-of-a-kind plants. So it's going to be really important for all of these climate tech companies to have that capacity, whether they're bringing someone in from the outside or whether they have a, a, an internal team. You know, we work with companies from a lot of different sizes, right? So we work with... What is that role called, Joel? Oftentimes it's called the grant writer. Sometimes it's director of development or development specialist. We do you know, work with companies every, mostly seed and series A, but we work with pre-seed to series B companies because, and oftentimes those bigger companies will have folks internally that are working on something, but they will want our outside expertise. So in a lot of those cases, we're not managing the process from start to finish, even though sometimes we do. We're kind of in a more kind of guidance and advice role where we're really helping them understand the landscape engage with the funders, helping them with project design and scoping. And then most of the actual hours on the project, they're doing the execution. And so, you know, we're flexible with our clients. And I think that's really important. Like, again, we just, our main goal is to have our clients develop and scale their product and succeed. And so however flexible we need to be to kind of suit their needs, like that's what we do. You're going to have a recruiting arm someday? (laughs) I would like one. I'd like one today. Yeah, no, I could see you, you know, it's like a, a lead behind would be plugging in a grant writer or a director of development to carry the torch uh, once you guys unplug. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at this point, I'm hiring all those people for myself, everyone I can find. <laughs> but yes, I think I think someday there are a variety of models that we can use, I think, to, to really support, support people in improving the ecosystem and improving their internal capacity as well. Uh-huh. And you talk from a mission standpoint about wanting to get more grant money into the hands of companies doing the most impactful work with the highest probability of success. If you could change one thing outside of the scope of your control, that would most accelerate that. So not a uh, a CFS specific thing, but something outside of the scope of your control, what would you change and how would you change it? A lot of this, a lot of the biggest money is coming from public funding sources. And you know, not only just on kind of on the non-dilutive funding side, but on the complete economic transformation, deep decarbonization side. And that's going to be throughout changes throughout the economy, but it's also going to mean a lot of non-dilutive funding and policy is going to be required to like get, make that money available and make those, those fundamental shifts. But I think this $555 billion tranche of climate funding is kind of languishing in in the Senate right now. So I think if I could wave a magic wand, if we could change the political system and how policy is made, difficult to see how the current drivers get sufficient policy in until the impacts are really kind of just staring us in the face. And so having our politics and policy making process be different, I think is going to unlock and and unleash the, the full range of funding that we really do need. So with your one wish, you would dismantle democracy. (laughs) I would make democracy work better. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, got it. Yeah, you could go that way too. (laughs) Joel, who do you want to hear from? How can we be helpful to you? On the pod? 
Well, for anyone listening that's inspired by your work to the extent that you're hiring for certain roles or looking for certain types of clients or there's anything that would be helpful for you, this is a chance to shout it out to listeners. In general, as, a, as for the ecosystem, I really encourage climate startups to start thinking about non-dilutive funding, taking advantage of the full capital stack, using all the resources that are available, developing an integrated fundraising strategy, because that's really going to scale your your solution as, as quickly as possible. So listen, if you have a really high impact climate company and you want to help doing that, definitely reach out to us. But I, it doesn't need to be us. I would say just start thinking about that and doing that in whatever way, whatever way you can. And I think other other actors in the ecosystem, I think VCs, accelerators can do a lot to help by just understanding this landscape better and and supporting the companies that you interact with in developing those those integrated fundraising strategies. And we're hiring for multiple roles right now, grant writers, fundraisers, project managers, and, and operational support staff. So definitely you know, go to our website and, and check out those on the careers. We're growing really rapidly. We're trying to meet all the, the demand that's out there in, in, in the climate, climate startup world. And uh, Hope, hope to be able to, to scale to match the scale uh, of the challenge. Great. Well, we covered so much here, Joel, and I learned a ton. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for going over time. And thanks for all the work that you and the CFS team do because it's super important. And several of our portfolio companies have already benefited from it. And I'm confident that many more will both uh, within the MCJ portfolio and, and elsewhere in climate tech. So best of luck to you. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.